Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. My first guest, 282 winners in Hong Kong and 37.1 million pounds in prize money, but he is back. He was dubbed the Iron Man by the Chinese press. That is a sort of reception he used to receive when he rode a winner from the huge and enthusiastic Hong Kong racing and betting public. He is, of course, Neil Callan. Neil, great to see you. It's nice to, to be on the show. And we've missed you, but I don't know how much you've missed us. How much have you missed British racing? I know I've um, I've always kept in touch with it. Um, uh, I always I had live live feed out in Hong Kong, so I could watch live racing uh, when the timing was right. But um, and obviously I watched your show from afar, and um, you've seen what a good job you were doing. So it's 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 a privilege actually to be on here. So it's nice to be home. Well, it's great to have you with us. Why did you come back? Uh, I suppose it was a mixture of uh, a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> my kids were getting a bit older. I've got four boys, and my eldest son Jack is fourteen, and I got Henry who's twelve. And I suppose they're kind of getting to that teenage stage where um, my eldest son Jack wants to be a jockey. He's dead set on it. Um, and you, it's something. What do, you, what do you think about that? Uh, it's something I'll support. Absolutely. Why? Why wouldn't I? Like, look at the career it's given me, and the life it's given me, and the life it's given my family. So, you know. One thing I will always do in life is that I will support my kids, whatever they do, as long as they're not bums. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, yeah, I think that's most important. You've got to support your kids in whatever they're going to do. And if Jack wants to be a jockey, then I'll fully support him. So that was the big driving force. You felt that the rest of their upbringing should be here in Europe rather than, than in Hong Kong. Yeah, I think in Hong Kong, like, the lifestyle is... Um, it's very good. It's a little bit, um, no, I wouldn't say false, but it's, it's, it's not real life, you know. It's, it's nearly too good, you know. Um, and um, you kind of grow up a little bit spoiled. And um, I just thought now at this stage with those, the old boys getting a bit older and the younger ones following them up, I think it was uh, time to come home. So the timing was right. When you, you left to ride in Hong Kong, and I know you had a, a bit of time where you were doing the two, you were riding here and riding in Hong Kong in the winter, but when it came to the decision to up sticks and take the whole family out and to live there, what did your wife Trish say to you? Uh, she, obviously, she's a bit apprehensive because, you know, um, her family was in Newmarket where our, where our home was, and, um, you know, she was very close to her grandfather because he used to take her show jumping as, as a kid. And uh, she was still doing a lot of shows when we were when we, just before we left. So um, I suppose she was a little bit uptight about that, you know, because it's a big move if you're going to go the other side of the world and kind of have it in the back of your mind that if you do well over one season, two seasons, that it's going to be like three seasons, four seasons, five seasons. 
But, um, you know, it was down to me to convince them, and I did. So then, obviously, I had to perform to take them all the way over there to um, prove to them it was, it was a good idea. So I, I said it's been described as the, the toughest jockeys group, the toughest jockeys colony, as they used to call it, in the, in the world. Is that, is that a fair assessment of Hong Kong, do you think? Yeah, like, I mean, when I rode in, in England before that, um, obviously, you, you, you have to perform on a daily basis. You race seven days a week. But, you know, the, I used to ride, I, I rode a lot of uh, years for Kevin Ryan. So, like, you know, we're very good relationship. Always had good horses every season. You know, so you give the odd one a bad ride and you move on to the next day and it's quickly forgotten about. Whereas in Hong Kong, you race twice a week. And it's very scrutinised by the local press, the international press, and there's so much information out there that you know the scope is on you. And a new jockey coming in, you've got to quickly uh, perform because you can uh, drop out very, very quickly. And you know it's 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 like swimming against the tide. You know if 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 you kind of drop back, it's harder to make that extra yard. So you kind of have to be very, very kind of aggressive, uh, very on the ball, uh, very focused. There's so much, so much you have to be on. When you arrive there, do you get any help? When I <laughs> went there first, <laughs> it's like, it's, com it's, it's a bit different because it's completely different to what we used to in the UK. UK, you have a, an agent who books all your rides. Um, they kind of help you with your form and you know, you walk with your trainer. And when you go there, it's kind of like, okay, here's your license. Uh, there's the trainer stand and um, you're on your own. Quite so, terrifying. Well, it is, but you know, at the start, I suppose it is. And then you kind of have to realize that, well, nobody's gonna help me here, so I've got to help myself. So I've got to get in, do my own PR. I have to interact with the trainers, then I have to obviously meet some owners, get in with them, get to know them, and then once you start kind of getting rolling and getting a few winners, then you have to, you don't rest on your laurels, you have to kind of push out and meet new people and new owners, and then those owners introduce you to other owners, and um, you just kind of build up a rapport between everybody, and yeah, that's, that's literally what you got to do. It seems to me, just looking from the outside, that you have to have this combination of being quite alpha, quite aggressive, but at the same time being a, an arch diplomat. It's quite, a diff it's quite a difficult balance to strike, isn't it? You certainly have to be diplomatic because um, there's only 24 trainers and 23, 24 jockeys. So, you know, if you're to fall out with a few trainers along the way, you know, you, you, it narrows your... your your gap to, to chase the rides that you want to get on. So, yes, you have to be diplomatic. Um, you have to learn how to conduct yourself. But also, you have to be a little bit aggressive, like you say, because you have to be able to push yourself into these people to convince them that you're good enough to be there and good enough to win on their horses. The Chinese press dubbed you Iron Man. Where did that come from? Um, it's quite funny. Um, well, not funny, but... Um, I rode in a race one day, um, and unfortunately, my horse got brought down. He clipped heels, and um, I kind of rolled out through the rails. And then on the inside of the, the, the track, there's a drain which runs along by the road. I nearly fell into that, and um, 
anyway, I literally felt like I was okay. Got up. The most important thing was to run to help the horse. I could see he was in quite some difficulty. So I held on to him till the vets got there. Uh, once the vets had him, then I got the tack off and then literally looked around for the nearest car, jumped in the car. Like, I'm in the next race, I need to go. Rushed back, ran across the track, uh, ran into the wear room, um, getting some applause from trainers and that, but I didn't really think anything of it. I just rushed in, got ready for the next race, come back out, and I think I won the next race. And um, it was funny, when I came back in, there was like applause and cheers and everything. And like, I just felt like I was doing my job, and, and I'm a competitive sportsman. So, But anyway, the next day, the Chinese press put up all over the papers that um, that I was going to be dubbed the Ironman. So I thought it was a good fit, and it was a good, <laughs> it was a good name to have. So you know, I still good it. There's worse nicknames to have. And did it give you did it give you that little bit of identity that you need? Because is being N. Callan just not quite enough? Yeah, obviously. Like I mean, you have to be yourself. But when you're out there and it's uh, they're so passionate about the sport, like it's the number one sport in Hong Kong, horse racing that um, once you get labelled with a big name or dubbed with a name like that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's good, it helps. When Marrera came along, and everyone knows what he's done for, for Hong Kong racing, and they called him the magic man, um, how did that make you feel? You'd been there as part, of the, as part of the jockey's firmament, big competitor, and he gets this kind of stardust status. What, how, did it, how did it resonate amongst all the other riders? Oh, look, throughout the years, even from when I first started going there, before Joe even got there, you know, you had the likes of Darren Bean, Brett Pribble, you had a, Jeffrey Lloyd, you had a lot of top jockeys there. Uh, Christoph Sumion has been out there uh, for a long time. And then Joe came from Singapore and he was like, um, he went from Brazil to Singapore and he was champion jockey. And I knew they were trying to get him there beforehand anyway. And uh, eventually he came and he obviously came with this big aura that he was going to just take over. And uh, he kind of did, you know, he's, he just makes certain horses run that uh, obviously hadn't before and he gets the status of Magic, magic Man Joe. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't really kind of feel put out by it because there's so many jockeys filtered through Hong Kong and some do well and some top jockeys don't. So it's determined by who you are, your personality, how you approach things and how you you conduct yourself and obviously how you get horses to run and Joe did that very well so it didn't put me out because um, you, once you're there you kind of you look after yourself really you know and, and Joe's a good guy and he's been doing great things in Hong Kong so you know it's like the Ryan Moore in England you know he's top jockey here and has been for a long time you've got to respect these people as well. Welcome back. It wouldn't be luck on Sunday without an early appearance from uh, Mr. David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror. We're going to reflect on all the news this week and yesterday's racing, Dave. But first of all, good to see you. And I really enjoyed listening to, to Neil Callan. Fabulous to have him back. It really was compulsive listening that. It was a, a very entertaining uh, start to season, season five. Is it season five? Season five. Oh, my word. Um, may I just point out, Nick, that under my left eye... Uh, it looks almost as if I've had a fight or walked into a door, but it, it's just merely a, a, a skin problem. Nothing more serious than that. Okay, I'm just sorry we couldn't get uh, 
make up onto that early enough today. Let's go back to yesterday and talk about the feature race, the Sprint Cup. It was supposed to be another glorious coronation for Starman. It didn't quite happen that way. He was only beaten by a shorthead, however. He was beaten by Emiratiana, trained by Kevin Ryan, another Group 1 race for him, and ridden by Andrea Atzani in the colours of Sheikh Mohammed Abade. It was a second win for that three-way partnership of the day, following triple-time success earlier in the afternoon. And what Emiratiana showed in the yellow colours was blistering speed for the first seven-eighths of this race. Starman appeared to get tapped for a bit of toe midway, but then rallied to the cause gamely, couldn't quite get back up. Dave Yates. Well, this was, you, you say that it was supposed to be a coronation for Starman, Nick, but there were, there were plenty of true people who took on the favourites. Um, and I, th I think that what many people thought might be the issue with Starman would be a bit of a flat spot, which the uphill finish in the July Cup helped him out, didn't it? And he didn't quite have that at Haydock here. And in the end, he, he just ran out of time. But Emiratiana, a horse who won the Jim Crack Stakes 2, had had, I think, by my calculations, won one of his next 13 races, a mere one of his next 13 races, then was back to winning form at, at Hamilton, a 40-to-1 shot for the Nunthorpe, obviously second to winter power there, and, and built on this. So, in, in other words... Um, a real training triumph for the Kevin Ryan team uh, in trying to rediscover mm. the mojo of a horse who, you know, the, the gym crack we, we, we're used to seeing as a, as a springboard to a horse's career at, at three and beyond. It, it didn't really prove that way with this horse, but he's really back now. Of course, they won the, the Breeders' Cup turf sprint with glass slippers at Keeneland last November. First runner at the meeting yeah. for the stable? No, second runner. They second had East, runner. who finished second in uh, the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies Turf a couple of years previously. Let's hope the sub spotted that in today's uh, Sunday Mirror. <laughs> and um, they'll follow, it seems, a similar path. Much was made about the ground preference of Starman for quick terrain, but it was also well, the case with the winner. Isn't it the ultimate irony that even though Starman's connections had pleaded for fast ground for two weeks, it was the quickness of the ground on that track, on a fast flat six, in a race record time, that might have been their undoing, because it enabled a, a fast, brazen horse like Emiratiana to have them all, including him, off the bridle and to hold on. I would put it to Ed Walker that had there been five mils of watering overnight, Starman might have won. Well, the logical way of looking at that, or at least one way of looking at it, is that had the race lasted for another second exactly. or half a second, then then the, the runner-up would have ended up in front. So that is true, but as, as, as somebody who routinely complains about overwatering and, and stuff like that on British racecourses, I was really pleased to see it, a fast ground sprint. So was I, yeah. someone who backed Emirati and I was, yeah. I was thrilled, but uh, it, was, it was speed. It was a pure test of speed, this race. Yeah, it's a Group 1 sprint, so that's exactly... Uh, what it should be and Kevin Ryan said in the, the Mirror on Thursday indeed the, the Star and the Express too uh, now that, that, that he didn't see why this horse was 25 to 1 I know that, that you, you tipped uh, the winner too and that confidence was borne out here very good runs in behind from Chill Chill who's getting there probably has a group one 
in her at some point. Happy Romance ran a fantastic race. Creative Force ruined his chance by bobbling quite notably out of the stalls and could be marked up for that effort. But uh, the winner's the one I'm most excited about in well, the immediate future. Yeah, absolutely, because um, we're, we're now looking at, well, obviously, a Group 1 sprinter. The, the, uh, we, we followed this horse's career from a Group 2 victory uh, as a two-year-old. There were a couple of relatively barren seasons. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we've now got, haven't we, three three runs of a linear upward curve, a return to winning form at Hamilton, that excellent 40-to-1 second in the Nunthorpe, and now this, a, a, a Group 1 victory over six furlongs. Again, uh, the trainer was apt to say that he was particularly impressed by the York run because he didn't see a Jim Crack winner at two, Emiratiana, as being a natural five furlong horse. I think that was borne out yesterday. Hopefully we can see Emiratiana now because we're going to... Head to Yorkshire, to Kevin Ryan's base, where I'm hoping that Kevin's daughter, Amy, is with us and can hear me. And there is Amirati Anna over, over her shoulder. Amy, good morning. Good morning, everyone. How are you? We're very well, thank you very much. More importantly, how is Emirati Anna this morning? He is very well. We'll see him out now in a moment. OK, so just, just introduce me to, to the groom with Emirati Anna this morning. Uh, this is Uma, who led him up yesterday, um, and here he is out of his box, looking fantastic this morning. He does look—he does look in great shape. He's quite an imposing, impressive horse to to look at physically, Amy, isn't he? Yeah, he's a lovely horse, and he's got—he's got a lot of height about him as well. Um, you know, there's plenty of scope about him. We always knew whatever he did, sort of at two and three, was always going to be a bonus for the future for him. Now, your dad said yesterday, and, and he said it before, so it's not as though he was only saying it with the benefit of a Group 1 win, that this is, this is the best horse he, is, he has trained. It's a bold statement, and he's got plenty of context to measure that against. In your experience of all the horses you've seen in this stable, what makes him good? What makes him so special? He's just got so much natural ability. And to be fair, my dad has never, ever lost faith in, faith in this horse. Um, as a two-year-old, you know, he won first time out and we always thought he was special and you know when uh, this year things were just we were trying to drop him in but he's got so much natural speed and he pings the gates and it's often hard once they get into the stride to then take them back in a race to be able to you know take a lead on them uh but obviously at Hamilton there was two front runners that blazed off in front when he won and he just you know he managed to just drop in and settle behind them and then obviously in the Nunthorpe the same sort of thing two went blazing off and we managed to get a lead on him. And thankfully, yesterday, the same thing happened. And I think now he's, he's you know, get, dropping in. He's just playing to his strengths a little bit more because he's just got that finishing speed. And he's just a very special horse. How do you train a horse like this? Yeah, he, um, he just gets trained. You know, he just does, we just do a, one canter a day. They canter up, they canter back down, and they hack back down. But like Dad said yesterday, he's such an enthusiastic horse. He has thrives off work he loves work so I can try and please you a little bit too much um, in his work in the morning but um, you can see there he, he's so relaxed today after his run and he looks fantastic and he's a very special horse to us and what he did yesterday just proved that you know my dad keep him faith you know it just proved him right and you won the Breeders Cup last year with glass slippers will it be the same race for him that Breeders Cup turf sprint it's just the bang five furlongs this year at Del Mar yeah I think that's what they 
touched upon yesterday, obviously it's we, it just getting him home, getting him out of the race, seeing how he is afterwards. You can see he's absolutely fine. So I'm sure that'll be the plan for him now. And um, it's, it, you know, it's fantastic for the owner, Sheikh Mohammed Abade, and he puts so much into the game. It's fantastic to see him, you know, get so much back out of it as well. And to have a horse winning at the very top level, uh, for us, he's, he's given us so many opportunities. And also Andrea Arzini, um, delighted for him as well. He, he's such a lovely guy and it's fantastic for everyone. Amy, it was a great day for you. We're going to have a look at triple time winning in a moment as well. Just a quick line on, on that horse. I, he looks a, a very exciting two-year-old. Yeah, he is. He's um, a horse we've always thought an awful lot of. And he's a horse that I think needed the racing. Physically, he was there. Mentally, he just needed, he needed um, to get out on the track. And he's just shown us how special he is. And yesterday, we were very confident going into the race. And I know Andrea thinks an awful lot of this horse. And to see him go and win like he did yesterday at that level, again, just proved how much everyone thinks of him. And my dad's always thought horse and he's a lovely horse. He's, he's a big scopey horse. There's loads of scope about him. And I think whatever he does this year is going to be a bonus, I think, um, for next year and onwards. Kempton Park yesterday. There were two group races there. One was the Cyrenia Stakes and one was the September Stakes. Both races featured interesting stories for trainer Charlie Fellows. More of that in a moment. But first of all, let's look at the September Stakes and the victory of Hamish, which was a notable performance in itself because he'd been off the track for over 400 days. He'd been readied for the Ebor by trainer William Haggis. He was taken out of the Ebor at the 11th hour, the final hour because the ground was considered to be too quick before the shower that fell. But I think few could have anticipated that he would have the travelling pace to better Hookham over a mile and a half yesterday at Kempton. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Hookham was sent off the 130-on favourite, I believe. And, yeah, this... It's, uh, uh, William Haggis was a despondent figure, I think, on the, the Saturday uh, of the um, Welcome to Yorkshire Ebor Festival. And... This was a long-term plan for Hamish, as you say. That his last run was when fourth to Fanny Logan in the, the Hardwick at Royal Ascot in 2020. On the afternoon, uh, in, the, in the well, almost minutes before the race, it was announced that Hamish would not run because of unsuitably fast ground. This was his all-weather debut, and he's obviously he's shown a, a suitability for the surface in in out battling Hookham who I believe made a, a breathing noise afterwards Hookham of course was stepping back to a mile and a half after a couple of wins over further but yeah it was a it was a, a, a really I know it's a, almost a cliche that people like me pull out of the drawer about this being a great training performance but when you brought the horse back from such a long abstinence uh, readied him for the Ebor and then had to come back and fall onto a plan B on a different surface is quite a notable triumph, isn't it? It is, and that wasn't even the most significant story out of the race. Uh, that went to Prince of Arran, who was retired immediately after the race by, by trainer Charlie Fellows. But there's a story here, and uh, I began by asking Charlie his reaction to Prince of Arran's performance. Um... So, actually delighted with that run. It's probably up to the same standard as he's run here the last two years. And we feel that now is the time to call it a day. Um, he's going to be retired. Um, Australia is not on the cards, sadly. 
Um, as everyone knows, uh, and it's been well documented, the uh, restrictions getting over to Australia have been greatly lifted this year, and um, the vets in Australia have decided that he is too high risk um, to take over to Australia. So with that off the cards, um, I just feel that it's the best thing for him now. Um, he has been a superstar for me. He has taken me places I could only have dreamed of. Um, and I think now is the right time, really. He's, um, I don't think there's much else for him and he doesn't owe us anything and we can retire him a sound horse and get him a lovely home and he'll make someone very happy. I don't know who is going to take him. There'll be a long list of people wanting to have him, but um, he owes us nothing else and he's been a credit to the team and there are so many people to thank. Uh, his owners primarily, Mohammed Abeda, Saeed Abeda, Salem Abeda, for trusting me with this horse and allowing me to do what, really whatever I wanted to do with him, which is, has been amazing. To Tash Eaton, who was a huge part of his life early on, and latterly more Allard Beach and Jamie, who is here today, um, they've all played a huge part. And it's a very sad day. I am... Um, going to miss him a huge amount because he is a real character um, but I am delighted that he is retiring a sound horse and he'll have a, a, a fantastic retirement wherever that is. It's bittersweet because as you said you wanted to take him to, to Australia again. Was there anything specifically the, the Australian vets uh, said that they, they didn't like the look of? Uh, no, I don't think it was. I think it was more his age. Uh, he's eight years old. He's got a lot of wear and tear which you'd expect from an eight-year-old. Eight the vets called me on Tuesday and, um, and they said that there's nothing specific, but the Melbourne Cup has come under a huge amount of scrutiny re recently. And although I don't agree with the decision, you know, I wouldn't have entered the horse and planned to run him if I, if I thought that there was a risk. I do understand that they have a race to protect and at the moment it is under a huge amount of pressure. So, um, yeah, it, it's... Um, it's just one of those things. Can you uh, can you take me back to when you first saw Prince of Aaron when he when he first came came into your yard and and what you thought the job to do was with him? He was a re he's he's all you saw him today. He's a really good looking horse. He always has been. He's got a beautiful head, and he's got a cracking personality. He's just fun and a real character. And um, I always liked him, but I I didn't, you know, I never you never dream that he'd take you to places. Uh, to places that he's taken us, but it, really it all started here. He won his he won his first race here, and he loves it here. And it's probably very apt that he's finished here as well. Um, and yeah, we've had, oh, I've had some amazing. He's taken us all around the world. Dubai, that first win in Dubai was special. The win two days before the Melbourne Cup to get into the Melbourne Cup. And then back up and finish third. It was one of the best days of my life. Um, and he just leaves with so many fond memories that um, I will cherish for the rest of my career. Pretty classy response from Charlie Fellows. And we will be discussing the ramifications of Prince of Aaron not being able to run in the Melbourne Cup because of the intervention of the Racing Victoria vet later in the programme in Talking Points. But it was a very significant day for Charlie Fellows because he also trained his first domestic group winner in the shape of Eve Lodge, the grey colours, the far side black cap, Jim Crowley, fresh from his treble at Ascot on Friday. She's another 
progeny of the first season sire sensation Ardad, and she she went on strongly in the closing stages, Dave. Yeah, when one door closes, another one opens, I suppose. This was uh, a really promising performance for the future for uh, from Eve Lodge, who was uh, down the field at Royal Ascot, uh, but this was, yeah, let's hope that Let's hope that this is a, um, a harbinger for, for better things because I thought, as you said, that was a, that was a very classy response from the trainer about uh, the Melbourne Cup and we'll discuss that later on in, in our talking points. We will. But why was Eve Lodge's victory giving him a first domestic group success quite so significant for Fellows? Uh, it's been eight years coming. We finished second so many times, I have now lost count. Um, I've always believed in this filly. She was really good on debut. She was even better on her second start. And then I think she was probably still a bit weak at Ascot and just struggled to get through that horrendous ground. And then we were disappointed at Yarmouth, but maybe we shouldn't have been disappointed because the second the winner went and won a Group 3 on Thursday. So it was lovely to see her go and do that. Um, it's not easy, this game. It's not easy. And my team, Harriet, who rides her every day, assistants Mike, Kelly and Cheryl, they, they all work so, so hard. And I know that this will mean a huge amount to everyone back in the yard, um, equally as much as it means to me. Uh, you've had a lot of success in your career, including with the horse who you, you run in the next race. We'll come to him in, in a moment. So it's not as though anyone thought you were, you were underachieving, but clearly you've been putting a fair bit of pressure on yourself, from what I can gather. No, no and uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of what we've achieved so far, but it, it, the, you know, when there is a monkey on your back like this one has been, you can't help but think about it every time you go and run one. And uh, I am just delighted that... Uh, I'm delighted that that is now put to bed. I'm delighted that George Scott can never mention it ever again. Uh, I'm delighted um, for the owners who bought her privately after her win um, and that she has repaid their faith and my faith in her because uh, yeah, I do think she's a very good filly. But she could yet win you more group races because even though we were looking at all the horses getting in each other's way behind, she's won quite decisively. Yeah, and she's in a good size as well. I I'm sure she'll train on next year. Um, I think she idled a little bit in front. She could have done with something helping her out a little bit more. Um, and I'd, yeah, I'd be very confident that there's more to, more to come with her. And you mentioned Yarmouth where, where you were a bit disappointed. But had you left her... A little bit after Asker. Had you been gone easy on her a little bit? Yes, and, and she hated the ground. She's, she, I think our dads generally want a little bit of cut in the ground, um, and she definitely doesn't want it rattling quick. And as everyone knows, Yarmouth can be very quick at times. We had to try it to scrub it off the to-do list future, but um, yeah, she still ran very well in it, and in hindsight, it was probably a better run than we realised. What do you fancy doing next? Don't know. I'm kicking myself that I didn't put her in the Cheveley Park. Maybe that would have been a step too far at this stage. But um, we'll get back. I'll have a chat with the owners and see where we go from here. No, I haven't. I want to get today out of the way before we start making plans. Yeah, 
great news that Racing TV will be broadcasting every race live from the Breeders' Cup meeting this year from Del Mar. We'll also be showing you some of the Breeders' Cup Challenge Series, which guarantee winners a berth into their divisional finals. And we will start with a look at the racing from Saratoga last night. In a moment, a romp from a short-priced horse in the Phillies race, the Flower Bowl, the Breeders' Cup Challenge Series race for the Philly and Mare Turf Division. But first of all, here's Max Player booking himself a guaranteed berth in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Forza de Oro by ahead. Max Player on the outside in second. Night Ops has asked for more in third. Happy Sabre has lost a spot or two down at the rail. Now being passed on the outside by Chess Chief. Happy Sabre now picks it up once again. Up front, it is Forza de Oro and Max Player. Happy Sabre switches to the outside for the final stretch run. And it is Forza de Oro down at the rail. Max Player on the outside. Max Player and Forza de Oro. And Max Player has the lead inside the eighth pole. Forza de Oro is second. Then Happy Saber and Chess Chief. They're coming on for the finish. And it is Max Player to win Saratoga's Jockey Club Gold Cup. And the final time for the mile and a quarter, two minutes, two and two-fifth seconds. Warlike Goddess. At the hedge in third. Lovely Lucky is alongside. And then it is two and a half lengths. Back to American Bridge. And my sister Nat is the trailer. Here comes Great Island now. Up to challenge La Signore for the lead. Warlike Goddess is coming on now. And down on the inside is American Bridge. Is putting in a late run. Then my sister Nat. Warlike Goddess is asked for run and she is responding warlike goddess in frontier as they come on for the finish and she wins the grade one flower bowl a photo for second between great island and my sister nat for the flower bowl and the jockey club gold cup taking place this year at saratoga races that have been rerouted from Belmont Park, but both those horses earning themselves a guaranteed berth in the Breeders' Cup. Now, the Breeders' Cup this year for the second time will take place at Delmar Thoroughbred Racing Club. Uh, first run there in 2017. We want to know a little bit more about it, go behind the scenes, and we have got the perfect host in the run-up to this year's Breeders' Cup World Thoroughbred Championships, and that is Christina Blacker. Hi Nick, it's Christina Blacker. I was thrilled to hear that this week was a season premiere of Luck on Sunday and I wanted to be a part of your very first show because I want to introduce you to one of my favorite racetracks in the entire world, Del Mar, where the turf meets the surf. You know, normally this would be kind of a sad time for us. We're wrapping up our summer season, back to the nine to five, back to the grind. Holidays are over, school is starting, but this year's a little different. As we finish up summer, we can officially begin the countdown for the Breeders' Cup, which will be here for the second time on November the 5th and 6th. So if you've never been to Del Mar, let's take a look around. This is the house that Bing built. Bing Crosby, that is. Back in the 30s, the legendary singer and actor got together with a group of his Hollywood friends to establish racing at the Seaside Oval. Del Mar quickly became a playground for the stars and has maintained that sense of glamour meets coastal charm ever since. The Spanish Revival-style grandstand can hold up to 15,000 with reserved seats, a number that may come into play this year with COVID restrictions at sporting events. For opening day of the 2021 summer season, each fan was required to have a ticketed seat for entry. I'm told that similar to 2017, when Del Mar hosted its first Breeders' Cup, there will be a cap on attendance in order to maintain a safe and enjoyable experience for all racegoers. 
Right in the middle and on the south side, you'll find the 22,000 square foot oval shaped paddock. Its amphitheater style allows for views from all levels. Seating from the paddock side on the veranda terrace provides a more casual race day experience, with many coming straight from the beach in their sandals and board shorts. Now don't get me wrong, I love a day upstairs in the director's room or in the turf club, but this is actually my favorite place to sit. These are the stretch run boxes. It's a little bit more casual. You get to feel that ocean breeze all afternoon. Order up a Del Margarita or two perhaps and really learn why they call this place where the turf meets the surf. As far as the track goes, the main track is a one mile oval consisting of El Segundo sand with two chutes. One that allows for distances of up to seven furlongs at one turn, and a second chute for the classic distance of a mile and a quarter around two turns. The Bermuda Grass Turf Course is a seven-eighths mile oval with a diagonal straightaway chute for both mile and a sixteenth races and mile and an eighth races. The turf stretch is a quick 817 feet, one of the shortest in North America. Saving ground on turf is at a premium here. As far as the Breeders' Cup races go, there are a few noteworthy details with regard to distance. The dirt mile is run around two turns here, whereas in some locations it may be a one-turn race. The turf sprint and juvenile turf sprint will both be run at five furlongs, shorter than you may find in other locations where they can accommodate a six furlong sprint on grass. We have found this summer that post positions one and two have accounted for nearly half the winners of all turf sprints. And the Philly and Mare turf will be run at a mile and three-eighths starting on the back stretch and around three turns a change from 2017 when it was run at a mile and an eighth from the turf shoot. Of course, at the end of the two days of championship racing, everyone hopes to end up right here in the winner's circle. I know travel can be difficult. It's restricted in a lot of places right now. So hopefully some of you out there can make it to Del Mar for the Breeders' Cup this fall. If not, please put this on your calendar for the future, maybe next summer, maybe in the years beyond. I promise you, you will enjoy your trip. You'll have beautiful weather and you'll leave feeling relaxed and refreshed. I look forward to bringing you many more updates with regard to the Breeders' Cup here from Del Mar and in California in the next couple of weeks. Christina Blacker reporting for us from Del Mar, and you'll be hearing plenty more from Christina in the run-up to the Breeders' Cup. Now, at the rate my next guest's progress is going, you would be brave to bet against her being at the Breeders' Cup next year. This year might be a bit of a stretch, but she has crammed so much in to 19 years. She's been a five-time European International Pony eventing medalist before switching her attentions to horse racing. It has only been just over a year since she had her first ride. She's already had 40 winners. She's second in the Apprentice Championship. And that, notwithstanding two pretty serious falls and a couple of quite significant injuries. But she's back, and she's here in the studio today en route to York. Safi Osborne, good morning. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Oh, a lot's happened, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's been busy. <laughs> I mean, you reached, not the summit, because that would have been the senior level, but in terms of what you were doing, junior eventing and pony eventing, you got to the very top. You had a glorious career played out before you and, and switched your attentions to racing. Have you made the right choice? Yeah, definitely. Look, I think I always saw my future in racing. I was very lucky that I got the opportunities from Lord and Lady Blythe to ride the two horses that I did um, and that took me and won me five European Championship medals. And um, But no, I think my focus was always going to be into racing. So how much has that background, that eventing background, that general equestrian background helped you? Um, not so much in my riding sense. I think it's so different. You can't, there's not much you can take from 
the way you ride eventing to racing but sort of the mental aspects of it um, and learning how to cope with pressure from such an early age like I jumped on my first English team when I was 12 or 13 so from early on you're learning that it's not all about you it's about the team around you and um, you've got to get results for them. Now, people will know that you're from a racing background. Your father, Jamie, was one of the, the most stylish riders that people saw oh over Oh, God, jumps. don't tell him that. It's true. <laughs> He's now quite self-deprecating about it. But he will also say, and he, he said it to me again yesterday, that the determination that, that you have and the, the strength of character you have is, is all from your mum, Katie. Would you agree? Uh, probably. I think I remember reading an article he did after, I, uh, after one of my European championships, and he said... Um, I thought I was competitive and then I met my wife um, and we've bred a competitive hybrid. So um, I say my competitiveness um, can be good in some ways and bad in others. Were you competitive at school? Very, yes. I've, I've probably lost a few friends over competitiveness. <laughs> but to the point that you then wanted to ride full time and everything else that you could have excelled in had to take a had to take a back seat. How much time did it take to make that decision? Um, the decision, probably not very long, but the transition, it was over a few years. Um, I think I always wanted to do it. I started riding out for Dad when I was about, I think I was just turned 12, and from then, the minute I sat on a racehorse, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, when I left school, I then went to Aidan O'Brien's for the season, and I learnt so much there, and... I'm really grateful for that experience as well. Tell me a little bit about riding at Bally Doyle. Oh, it's just, it's like a kid going into a candy shop. It's like all the horses that you walk into the arena for the first morning and it's every horse has their name on the number cloth, um, not the number cloth, sorry, their saddle pad. And it's like, those are the horses of the kid. They're the ones that you see on TV. They're not the ones that are right next to you. So um, to have sat on some unbelievable horses it's just an experience you wouldn't normally get uh, what i find extraordinary about going to ballad is you can recognize every horse just by pedigree you don't even yeah. need to know their name because he quite <laughs> often has the the pedigree sort of abbreviated onto the onto the saddle yeah it's crazy when you see like peeping fawn underneath <laughs> underneath the name and um all the other incredible mares and yeah it's just it's quite interesting as well because by the end you know every single horse's pedigree just because you're just like um, unintentionally looking at it every day and um, no it's amazing. What about the regime though how did that differ from anything you'd seen before? Um, it was amazing look it was very different the way um, he he does it and um, I think it's known that he tends to work his horses quite hard and um, I loved that because they weren't very fresh <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and They're I was well drilled. Yeah, I was very lucky that um, I was able to ride work there as well on a pretty daily basis and doing that I was 17 at the time and you really get to learn what a good horse is I was very lucky that I, I rode broom every day um, and now to see him go on and win his group one this year was amazing um, but no I was unbelievably lucky to get that experience that's interesting so you were riding him every day so that that sense of continuity is obviously very important to aid sort of building yeah. the horse's his career like that yeah definitely I rode him I think from my second week there I rode him every day um, until I left there and um, I think he's a massive in getting people to build a relationship with that horse so that 
if there isn't something quite, they don't think there's something quite right with them, they know rather than if you have a different rider on them every day, um, they wouldn't necessarily know how they felt yesterday or how they felt the day before. Um, and kind of, yeah, building that relationship with horses. So you came back from Ireland knowing what a good horse felt like. How much did that help you when you went, went into race riding? Yeah, massively. Look, I probably haven't, well, I definitely haven't ridden some of the standard that were at Aidens, but um, I got to ride a really nice filly for Mr. Charlton um, the other day, Jumbly, for um, Emmy Rothschild. Um, and she's, she's a lovely filly, and it's just nice to have ridden something like that on the track. Is that the closest you've come on the track? to thinking, oh, this could be quite special. Yeah, definitely. Look, the way she quickened up, turning in, and how straightforward she was through the race, um, I can't fault her. Um, there was nothing that you couldn't like about her. I said you packed an awful lot into, into a year. Not just great highs, but some significant blips as well. At, at Windsor last autumn, you had a, a horrific fall. Can you remember much about it? No, I don't, I don't remember anything about it. I had five rides that day and I could that was my last one I could tell you everything about my other rides and I have no recollection of even getting on um, that horse um, I remember the first thing I remember was waking up in hospital I don't really remember anything of being on the track at all and just remind us exactly how badly you injured yourself um, I I had broken the bone in my arm but it wasn't as simple as a clean break it had dislocated my wrist and that bone had also then dislocated itself from my elbow um, I then punctured my lungs as well um, and I had a pretty severe concussion which you probably don't appreciate until later on because you have so many physical ailments that um, that's what you notice more and then the concussion kind of catches up with you a little bit so did it take you a little while to to recover from that mentally as well as, as physically? Um, I think not so much. I didn't, there was no um, hesitation about riding because I don't remember any of it. There was never any doubt of that's what I was going to do. But it took me six months to be back on the track. Like it, it was a long time and it probably would have been even more than that without Oaksley House and the Injured Jockeys Fund. Um, they were unbelievable. I had my fall on the Monday and I left hospital on the Saturday. Um, and from the following Monday, I was in there for every day for six months. Um, how, how easy were you to live with at that point? Not very <laughs> at all. I think uh, Dad was ready for me to move out. My mother barely spoke to me. I think I was, I think I was fairly intolerable. <laughs> and how did it feel when you, you finally were able to get back on a horse? That must have been a good day. Yeah, it was amazing. I had my first couple of rides um, at Wolverhampton in March and... No, it was brilliant and it just everyone around you kind of I think George Baker was just about as excited as I was when I was back riding because um, he's been a massive part of my journey and um, he had done so much work with me whilst I was off and trying to it's not even so much just um, kind of the physical side it's trying to keep your brain in the right place because mm -hmm. when you used to riding horses every day of your life since I was tiny and then all of a sudden you can't you just can't do it and I was very lucky I didn't really get injured that much through when I was younger so I never really had a period of time where I couldn't sit on a horse um, and yeah I think it's the mental side of it when you can't do something and um, there's so many people around you that help you build back up to that so the day that I got to ride again it was it was brilliant 
And you know, talking to you quite a bit and knowing you for a few years, you, you thrive on work, don't you? You thrive on the business of doing it. You're not someone who wants to ever really sit still and take it easy. No, I, I don't really know what to do when I have a day off. I try to not give myself too many because even if, if, there's, I don't, no, if there's never a morning that I'm, I don't think there isn't ever a morning that I'm not riding out really, <laughs> even if I'm not riding. Um, but no, I've always someone that's thrived on working and working hard. And in terms of this season, we were talking a little while ago about where you sit in the, the Apprentice Championship. I can tell how much it annoys you that the answer to that question is second and, and not first. Is there still life in this battle? Um, I think I'll struggle this year. Um, I obviously had an injury again in the middle of the season. It seriously put a dent on my chances. Yeah, just a, broken, um, just a fractured tibia. <laughs> hairline. <laughs> um, but look, Marco's had an absolutely phenomenal season and I can't knock that. Um, I think there's been a couple of things that I just feel haven't quite gone my way, but I wouldn't want be one to kind of say, oh, it's because of this or because of that. And I think um, I just got to work harder for next year and go at it again. And in terms of in terms of goals, are you someone who sets yourself numerical goals, big race goals, amount of rides, amount of where, do you, is that what drives you forward? Yes, I think I've always been someone that wants to just be the best at whatever they they're doing. Um, I would set myself numerical goals, big race goals, but obviously I d wouldn't talk about them too much because <laughs> you might sound delusional. <laughs> Um, but obviously as a kid you grow up and there's always big races you want to win like to me the Arc de Triomphe is like just it's where the best horses meet and um, from all age categories and sex categories so to me that was I remember growing up and my favourite horse was See the Stars and watching that was just phenomenal and other things like I'd love to win a Breeders' Cup Classic to kind of redo dad's history um when he was so unlucky with toast and it's just stuff like that but it's not stuff you kind of talk about or really think about obviously it's always going to be like you dream as a kid but um it's stuff that it takes a lot of hard work and you have to be very good the good thing is that no one's watching so it's just between you and me <laughs> i I won't tell everyone that you've come on and said it's my dream to win the Ark and the Breeders' Cup Classic. But in fairness, two years ago, we could have had this conversation. You said, well, I'm going to have my first ride in July. And then within a year, I want to be challenging for the Apprentice Championship. And I want to have ridden 45 winners. People might have thought, well, that's probably pushing it a little bit. And that's <laughs> happened fairly easily. Yeah, I think I kind of, I never pony raced. Like so many, most kids now going into racing have pony raced or that sort of stuff but I'd never done that so for me it was going into the complete unknown when I started racing so it was quite hard to um like put targets on it straight away but I feel like I wouldn't I feel like I'm someone that learns quite quickly mm. um and I work extremely hard to make sure that I do learn quickly so if, I don't know I think there's always I think I've always been one with rather unrealistic goals <laughs> um but work really hard to try and make them realistic. I have just received some communication from Jim Bolger about the 48-hour uh, the declarations. He said that he proposed 48-hour declarations 20 years ago, so... That should surprise nobody. It shouldn't. Um, 
I don't suppose it surprises my next guest either because Jim Bolger himself has described Brian Kavanagh as one of the, the greatest assets in Irish racing and lamented the fact that his tenure was ending as CEO uh, of HRI, but uh, ending it is, uh, and Brian is with me now. Morning, Brian. Brian, can you hear me now? I can, Dick. Sorry about that. Not at all. Um, good to have you on the line. I, I will come yeah. to Dave's point very shortly, so one for you to bank for the time being. But as I said, you know, 20 years as, uh, as the boss of, of HRI. Why now to stand down? Well, it, it's remarkable. The 20 years has flown through, uh, and uh, it only feels like yesterday I was starting. Uh, and um, as I said, it's hard to believe it's, it's 20 years. Uh, there, there are governments, uh, HRI is a government body and subject to government restrictions in relation to tenure of service, etc. So I, I got a renewed contract five years ago and indicated that I, I would serve five years and not look for another contract. Uh, and um, that time has come, so uh, um, time to move on and, and move on to new challenges. Uh, you, you did a, a seven-year stint and then a seven-year stint, and then, as you said, you, you had the five-year stint. When you got reappointed... Yeah. Uh, the, the last time there was a bit of controversy surrounding the appointment because it was seen that you just kind of sailed through again without, without much challenge. Were, were you conscious of that? Was that weighing on your mind? Were you thinking, oh, well, if I, if I go round again, people will just be saying, is Kavanaugh ever going to go? No, I, I mean, it's good. there's always a good time to move on. And uh, I had given a, a commitment five years ago that I would serve five years, do my job and uh, and not seek another contract. So that's what I did, and I must say they've been a, been a, a stimulating, challenging, but most enjoyable five years. When you came in in 2001, Brian, what was your remit? Well, HRI was a new body. It was bringing together a lot of different strands within Irish racing, particularly a lot of the functions previously carried out by the, the Turf Club and the Irish Horse Racing Authority. So the early part of that was, you know, establishing the body, establishing its authority, recruiting the team, and putting a strategy in place. And, uh, you know, uh, um, Irish Race has been on a journey for the last 20 years, but it's been good to work for a chairman who, who took a strategic approach to the industry and took a, a long-term view. So, so we came with a very simple approach, I suppose, to strategy, uh, uh, you know, to focus on, on ownership, to focus on prize money, to focus on capital investment uh, that was required in our racetracks, and to focus on high-quality racing. Um, so we did that. You know, racing is probably a more important industry in relative terms in Ireland than it is in other European countries. So uh, it gets positive government support. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the job is engaging with that, uh, the government on, on, on various racing issues and then engaging with the government on, 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 on various racing issues. So it's, um, it's, it's a very job. It's a fantastic job because there's, there's a, a huge amount of variety in it. And we probably have a more centralised system of organisation in Ireland than you will be familiar with in the UK. So it means you, your reach extends into uh, many, many different areas. But, you know, the, the, the remit was to build up um, the industry. You know, we, we all remember, luckily it's 30 years ago now, but the days when Irish uh, trainers used to travel to Cheltenham and, and come home happy with one winner or two winners um, uh, one year we had no winners, so I, I suppose it was, a, it was a development and a strategic remit. Uh, and uh, as I said, it's been a privilege to, to do the job in that time. Uh, one of the byproducts of that, as Dave Yates touched on, was the fact that many super stables have grown in Ireland. 
in the last two decades. Are you, uh, to, to paraphrase what Dave was asking, are you happy that more of the big prizes are falling into fewer hands? Uh, are you happy with the way that that um, contributes or detracts from the sport? No, I think on balance that's a positive. I think you're always trying to balance the, 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 the push for quality and the push for excellence, uh, you know, with the, the, the more general uh, growing of the grassroots. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the horses that uh, are winning races for these, these top-level trainers have come through the breeding, the, 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 the pre-training system, the production system, in the case of the National Unseen, through the point-to-point system, you know. So, so people along the line are getting a turn out of all those horses all the time. And, and you must remember, you know, I, I really believe when you have good quality trainers uh, operating, that lifts, the ch- it challenges the rest of the, the community and it lifts the standard overall. Uh, and we see that now, you know, uh, a few years ago, you know, it, it, it was all Willie Mullins and people were worried about that. Then Gordon Elliott came along. Now with Henry de Bromhead and, and, and Jessica Harrington and Joseph O'Brien. Um, same on the class, you see a cohort of younger trainers coming through. So I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a positive for racing. And of course, those horses then travel the world uh, as ambassadors for our industry and our country. Uh, you know, it raises the level of competition. It raises the value of horses that are racing against these, these horses for, 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 for onward sale purposes. So uh, on balance, I think it's, it's positive. Brian, I realise that the IHRB, the regulator in Ireland, is is separate from HRI as the governor. Mm-hmm. But given that you are the you are the face of Irish racing, you are the figurehead for Irish yeah. racing, and you're about to hand over. How comfortable are you handing over a sport to your successor, Suzanne Ede, which has had in just one year in in 2021 uh, the Gordon Elliott scandal? The Stephen Mann debacle, more of which we've been reading about this week. Um, arguments over 48-hour declarations, allegations of rampant steroid use. Hasn't 2021 been an annus horribilis for the perception of Irish racing? Uh, it's been challenging. I mean, I think the 48-hour declarations issue is, is a separate issue, and that's, that, 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 that's, that's something we, we will deal with at our, at our board meeting tomorrow. Uh, you know, but each of those individual cases has been dealt with. When you have an industry of our size, issues like this will arise, uh, you know, from time to time. They've been dealt with. Gordon, you know, did something stupid, really stupid. He's paid a price for it, uh, and, and he's served his time. Uh, you know, the, the, the Mahan case is a case that has been prosecuted. A conviction has been secured. I won't comment on the, on, on, on the penalties or anything like that, but, but that was a, a case of malpractice being found and, and, uh, and dealt with. Uh, you know, with regard to the, 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 the drug testing issue, you know, we've been through three Oroctus hearings, you know, uh, um, uh, without any uh, uh, definitive findings. You know, the, the IHRB this year have been given new powers, which no racing authority anywhere in the world has, which is pre- the power to go into any premises, any equine premises in the country, whether it's a licensed trainer or, or, or not. You know, they operate to the same standards of drug testing as as the BHA operate to, they use the same lab, in fact. Now, that said, the IHRB itself, whom we work closely with, they're undergoing change themselves. They're changing chief executive. They're, they're doing a restructuring. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're cognizant of, of, uh, of the situation they're in, and, and we're helping them wherever we can with that restructuring. So, you know, things evolve uh, uh, over time, and, you know, that's, 
it's it's one of the, one of the beauties of the game. It's one of the challenges of the game. You don't know what's coming down the line uh, tomorrow. Um, but um, you know, I, I think those issues arise. They've been dealt with. You know, sometimes a bit like the buses, they all come together. You know, we were we were very happy with with the state of the industry in the spring when you know Rachel Blackmore was winning the Grand National and when, 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 when uh, Ireland was having a fantastic time in Cheltenham. So over the course of the years, you get to see that these things ebb and flow and you need to step back and take the, the sort of longer term strategic look at, at the direction you're travelling in. Uh, I mean, Jim Bolger, who's been singing your praises um, pretty effusively, particularly when it was announced that you were, you were likely to step down, he also said that you'd been having to hump the 12 stone 10 handicap of, uh, of the IHRB. For, for all these years and having to effectively deal with their their shortcomings is that a is that a, an appraisal that you would you would recognize well regulation is never popular uh, and uh, you know i think our role is to work with the ihrb and try and uh, ensure that as an industry in ireland we have you know world leading standards of regulation and and, and, and world leading uh, standards of of, of of licensing and things like that and you know, they will say there's always areas to improve, but they are endeavouring to improve, and 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 we're, we're helping them to improve it. Uh, you know, so it's an area uh, that's very very important to HRI, given that you know the international reputation of our industry, you know the the value of our media rights, the 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 the, the funding of government, all depends on the on the, on the um, the reputation of the sport. Brian, what's the Brian Kavanagh legacy to Irish racing, do you think? Uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't think in those terms, uh, uh, Nick. I mean, I, I, I came to racing as a, as a, as a, uh, with no background in racing 30 years ago uh, as a fan. And, and from a, on a personal level, uh, all I can say is that I've worked in the industry for 30 years and I love it even more than ever now. Uh, it's a fantastic game in terms of the people that are involved in it. Uh, in terms of the variety of different aspects to it, uh, and it's you know it's, it's part of the Irish 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 uh, uh, DNA to some extent. So it's been a privilege to live in that, uh, to, to operate in that environment. Uh, I, I don't think in terms of legacies. I, I think there's a, a fantastic team in HRI, and I think that's that's uh, something I'm really proud of, and I'm proud that my successor comes from within. I, I realise self-praise is no praise and you're reluctant here and I understand that. But if there, is, if there is something, if there is one piece of policy or a strategic thrust that you look back on with particular pleasure, what would it be? I think the organisation of Horse Racing Ireland itself, and this is a boring answer, Nick. Uh, uh, you know, Boring's fine, uh, Brian, as long as it's a true one. <laughs> I was centrally involved in it. It was a new concept. And it has, like, it's not perfect, far from it. Uh, I don't think any racing jurisdiction has a perfect structure. But it has given us a vehicle uh, through which the industry can, speak, can, can rally behind a sort of a single strategy, a, 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 a forward-facing direction, uh, you know. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the various different factions of the industry don't agree on everything. They, they, they agree on very little. But the, the, the organisation of horse racing Ireland does get buy into the industry and allows us to unite behind a, a, a single policy and speak to government with a single voice. Uh, and that's, 
Donny Kavanagh because this was put in by by smarter people than me. But 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 I'm I'm proud of the fact that we've been able to grow that from from in infancy uh, to an organisation that, that that we have now, and hopefully you're seeing the results of that on the on the track and uh, in the sales ring. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.